The message this morning, the person of the Holy Spirit. And with all seriousness, I would like to give this the unoriginal subtitle, Good Morning, Holy Spirit. I do that not in any way to suggest that I recommend. Does anyone know what that's a reference to? Good Morning, Holy Spirit. Anyone old enough to remember the late, I mean the early, I had to be the 1980s. Anyone know what that's a reference to? Yeah, Benny Hinn uh, wrote a book in the 80s uh, entitled Good Morning, Holy Spirit, and I certainly am not recommending that book. I would probably, I have not read it, I'd probably hate the book, but I do like the title. And I think by the end of today's uh, message, you'll understand why. This morning's message, I believe, is important on two levels, and we'll basically be covering two aspects, uh, two general realms. The first is a doctrinal message on the Holy Spirit. This is necessary. We need this every now and then to um, inform and strengthen our understanding of the Godhead, of the Trinity. Because from time to time, as we all know, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you have that guy who comes into your church with an agenda, and with a purpose, and he's going to show you how, he's going to try to convince you that the doctrine of the Trinity is heresy, that it was invented by the Catholic Church in the 4th century, and he's going to try to deny the uh, deity of Christ or the deity of the Spirit, uh, claiming, again, this was uh, an invention of, of, of man. Um, not as original ideas by any means. These, long before they arrived at the doors of our church, these, there were theological dissenters from the very first century that denied the deity of the Son. That was Arianism and the personality or deity of the Holy Spirit. Um, they were called um, pneumatomachians, pneumatomachians, who denied the deity of the Spirit. Um, so perhaps this would be a good resource to strengthen your understanding of these heresies that the church has dealt with very early on. Uh, the second reason is to convince you of the reality that the Holy Spirit is a personal being who indwells you every moment of every day. That he is a real person. He is as real as your wife, as your best friend, as any other person who you are close to. I recall early on in my Christian walk, I was listening to Bible teaching on the radio, and back then, that you didn't have a, we didn't have podcasts. You couldn't just wait. You had to wait for your favorite Bible teacher to actually come on the radio, or you had to buy into his tape ministry or something like that. But I, I distinctly remember a message on the radio. It was a simple message on the person of the Holy Spirit. And it was particularly transformative in my early Christian walk. I knew the doctrine of the Trinity in my head, but something about that study God used to make me cognizant of the continual, per continual presence of a real person with whom I can have a personal relationship, with whom I can have a conversation, if you would, that was dwelling within me. So let's begin with the doctrine. There's nothing new here. There's nothing I'm going to share that most of you don't know already. These are things that the church has recognized for 2,000 years, nearly. And um, these are not matters that are open to question. Um, these are matters 
uh, that you may not fully grasp, we may not fully understand with our human understanding, but they are truths that every Christian in every age have agreed upon, and to not agree with these truths puts you outside of the realm of Orthodox Christian faith. And we need to know, we need to have an accurate understanding, a biblical understanding of who God is if we're going to relate to him rightly. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit, or the doctrine of the Trinity, is that there is one and only one God, eternally existing and fully expressed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That each member of the Godhead is equally God, each is eternally God, and each is fully God. It is not three gods, but three persons in one God. Each person is equal in essence, as each possesses fully the identical, same, the identical, eternal, divine nature, yet each person also has an eternal, distinct, personal expression. They are undivided in their nature, but they each have a distinct, personal uh, expression. The one verse uh, that uh, um, comes to mind uh, as far as... Uh, where the Bible, where Jesus teaches of the Trinity, is in the Great Commission, in Matthew chapter 28. You have Christ's authoritative statement of the Trinity. He says, go therefore, he's telling his disciples, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, the singular name of the Father, with the definite article, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you have a singular name followed by three individuals, each name preceded by a definite article, suggesting that each is distinct. The Holy Trinity is, yet, remains a mystery. But it is only a mystery due to our finite ability to comprehend God. That is, we cannot describe the Trinity in human terms. Every effort that we make, every effort that I've heard, uh, is actually giving a kind of a skewed understanding of the Trinity. Any illustration falls short. The challenge of contemplating the Godhead is moving from our understanding from one to three, and then three back to one. Today, as we study the Holy Spirit, the blessed third person of the Trinity, we can only do so in light of the Father and the Son. And this ought to be this way. Our study of the Spirit ought not, and indeed cannot, if we're being biblical in our, in our teaching, be so single so as to consider one person, the third person, without finding our hearts, our hearts turned to the Father and the Son as well. And that is exactly the role of the Holy Spirit, to turn our hearts to Christ. And while our focus in this study will be the Holy Spirit, the focus of one member of the Godhead will lead and ought to lead to the contemplation of the entire God. It's impossible to study the Holy Spirit in isolation from the Father and the Son. So let's look at the personhood of the Holy Spirit. When we think of God the Father, we're inclined to conceive in terms of the relationship of a father. We understand fatherhood in human terms. And the same is true of the Son. When we think of the Son, we have the same inclination. Even though we realize that the divine sonship and the divine fatherhood is greater than any human father or human son, 
It's easy to conceive of a father and a son as a person. But what about the Holy Spirit? Many times we will refer to him as it. I want to read to you, actually I want to recommend a book to you. If you don't have this, this is something you want to have in your library. Uh, I find it to be the best uh, work on the Holy Spirit, the most complete work as far as uh, more modern, read easily readable um, uh, treatise on the Holy Spirit by Sinclair Ferguson. If you don't have this, click on your Amazon. I'm giving you guys a plug here. Click on your Amazon or whatever, wherever you buy books, and uh, get this one. It's it's an excellent, uh, excellent treatise on the Holy Spirit by uh, Sinclair Ferguson. He writes this in the beginning of the book. He writes, most Christians read- readily and warmly respond to the description of Jesus as the Son of God, not only because of his humanity, but also because of his designation, Son, indicates a relational identity, Son, Father, with which we are familiar. In addition, when in Christ we are we learn to call God Father, the name conveys a rich kaleidoscope of images which helps us to understand and respond to him as the one who governs and guides and provides and guards and loves his children. But the name Holy Spirit, or worse, Holy Ghost, tends to convey a cold, even remote image. After all, what is spirit? Now, while we might get stuck on this terminology of Holy Spirit and what is described in the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we, and we can understand the roles of the Father and the roles of the Son by virtue of their names, it is a lot harder. For example, we understand, right, the Father sends the Son. That makes sense, even in our human understanding. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. As Jesus speaks in the Gospels, he often talks this way. The Son, we see, submitting to the Father. But the role of the Spirit is not as intuitive, based upon his name, the Holy Spirit. And it's one of the goals of this message to seek to understand the person of the Spirit from the Scripture so that we will not have some kind of a vague understanding of Him. And this is, again, necessary. Because He is the one who dwells in your heart. He is the one with whom you primarily are relating to on a daily basis. So you need to understand Him rightly. If you understand Him as it, you're going to miss a lot. And that's sadly the way the Holy Spirit has been considered in much of evangelicalism today. He's often considered, even among Orthodox Christians, more of a a force than a person. And as a result, many Christians fail to relate to the person of the Trinity with whom they are in closest communion. Yet the Scripture identifies the Holy Spirit as a person. He has a personality. There is no other way you can read the Bible and come away with any other idea than this is a person. The Bible will not allow us to think of any other way than the Holy Spirit as any less than a divine person, as much as the Father is a person and God, as much as the Son is a person and God. Some examples. In Genesis chapter 6, we read, The Spirit strives or abides with sinners. He gives wisdom in Exodus 28, verse 3. He stirs the hearts of the people to give in Ezra 1, 5. 
He creates in Matthew chapter 1. He sends and commissions in Isaiah 48. He gives life in John 6. He is the helper and the comforter in John 14 and John 16 and Romans 8. He speaks to people. Many verses we see that. The Holy Spirit speaks to people. Who but a person will speak to people? He speaks to churches in Revelation 2 and 3. He testifies, 1 John 5, 6. He leads John 8, uh, Romans 8, 14. He loves, Romans 15, 30. He is grieved, Ephesians 4, 30. He teaches, 1 Corinthians 2, 13. He is insulted, Hebrews 10, 29. None of these can apply to a force. So it's very important that if we're going to relate rightly to God, and I'm going to pound this home many times, it's all about relating rightly to God that we properly understand this matter of the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Those who relate to the Holy Spirit as merely a force or a manifestation or a mode of God's existence and not a distinct person ultimately are not understanding the God of Scripture as he reveals himself. And such thinking will inevitably lead you down a path of false teaching. It will lead you to think of the Holy Spirit as a power, as a force, the force of life. As a mode of God, there is a doctrine called modalism. It's a heresy that can be traced back to the 4th century. The idea that was adopted by some theologians in the 4th century, uh, Sibelianism, which is, was condemned as a heresy by the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, but it still is around today. It is still influential today, but there's nothing new under the sun, right? It's been around from the beginning Modalism is a blurring or an erasing of the real, eternal, and irreducible distinctions among the three persons of the Trinity. Modalism denies that there are three distinct persons. It sees a single being operating in three modes. That's why, brothers, and, and I'm sure we've all done this in our naivety, when to try to describe the Spirit, we've used analogies like, well, the Spirit is like water. And he exists in three forms, water, ice, and steam. That's modalism. What you're teaching is modalism. It is not an accurate understanding of the Holy Spirit. Modalism sees the idea of the Spirit as a distinct person, as actually being in conflict with monotheism, much the same way the Jehovah's Witnesses do with Jesus Christ, denying his deity, suggesting that we are not monotheists. We do not believe in one God, but believe in three gods. The Holy Spirit is a person, and at the same time, the Holy Spirit is fully God. He is not one-third of God, but he is fully God. Yet he is not the Spirit, it's not the Spirit alone that is fully God, but he eternally, eternally exists along with the Father and the Son. Each also possesses fully the identically same divine nature. Because of this, what distinguishes the Spirit from the Father and the Son is not the divine nature of the Holy Spirit. That's the same for all three persons of the Trinity. But what distinguish, distinguishes the Spirit is his role in relation to the Father and Son. So we're going to look at the role of the Holy Spirit. And we talked a little bit about this last night for those who were at the pre-conference meeting. We saw the Holy Spirit at work from the very beginning in Genesis Chapter 1, verse 2, where is the Spirit of God who hovered over the face of the waters in creation. 
And then he's progressively revealed through the scripture, making his most striking appearance in the New Testament. The Father is emphasized in the Old Testament, the Son is emphasized in the Gospels, and the Spirit comes forth in his greatest emphasis, although he's there in, in, in shadows, and he's there very clearly, more than just shadows, throughout, throughout the scripture, he, may, he comes to the forefront in the book of Acts after the day of Pentecost and in the epistles. God revealed his triune nature, though, through the ages, even from the book of Genesis. But the Trinity, as a formulated doctrine, could not be completely formulated and confessed until the completion of the canon of Scripture. It's notably interesting that when we look at the Gospel of John, for example, the Spirit is only mentioned a few times prior to John chapter 13. And John chapter 13 is when is part of what uh, Pastor Steve read earlier, the farewell discourse of Jesus as he's preparing his disciples to go, as the Son is going back to the Father, and as that time is drawing near, as the time of Jesus' departure is drawing near, it is then the Spirit comes and becomes the focal point after John chapter 13. And it is here, at this point, that the unity and the purpose between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit emerges very clearly in the Scripture. And the role and function of the third person of the Holy Spirit is understood. Now, if we're accurate in our theology of the Trinity, again, the study of a single person, Father, Son, or Spirit, will lead us to a loving devotion of all three persons, because you cannot separate them. So as we focus on the Holy Spirit today and this afternoon, we are shining a spotlight, if you would, on the one who does not shine a spotlight upon himself in the Scripture. Uh, it, it, it seems to me, when you consider the role of the Holy Spirit as uh, in, in creation, as the author of the Word of God, in the presence of the life of Christ, uh, as the giver of gifts, and all of these many ways that the Holy Spirit works among mankind, he seems to always be taking a back seat, if you would, to the Father and the Son, at least for most of the Scripture. If properly taught, any message about the Holy Spirit will end up magnifying the Spirit's own desire, which is to bring honor to the Son and glory to the Father, as the Spirit always does this pointing away from himself to the Father and the Son. Amazingly, though, even though the Spirit has the same nature as the Father and the Son, even though he is fully and equally God, he willingly accepts this behind-the-scenes position, if you would. Nearly everything that the triune God does, the Spirit is there. Everything the triune God does, the Spirit is there. But he's not often at the forefront. And we see this again all the way back to the book of Genesis, the Spirit carrying out the work of the Father in creation. We see it in the birth and the life and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see it in the Word of God, the Spirit of God, authored the Word of God, and the Word of God points us to Christ. We see it in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit dwells in our heart, but what's the goal of the Holy Spirit in our heart? To make us more like Christ, the Son of God. Let's look at the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus, beginning with his incarnation. Just as the Holy Spirit gave life and breath to the first man, Adam, 
Likewise, he overshadowed Mary, the mother of Jesus, to give life to Jesus, the last Adam. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and verse 20, it says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 20, it goes on to record the angel's words to Joseph. It says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In Luke's account, in Luke 1, verses 34 and 35, it says, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore... The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So in Mary's womb is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. In the incarnation of Christ, the incarnation of Christ would not be possible without the Holy Spirit. Jesus' life on earth is a work, is attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, at Jesus' baptism, says, John bore witness. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. So we have the Holy Spirit there at Jesus' baptism in the hovering form, just like he is in creation, hovering over the face of the waters, hovering over the face of the Jordan that day, over his the Son of God. The Holy Spirit was present and anointed Jesus in public ministry. We see this, uh, the Holy Spirit is the one that um, sends Jesus out after, the, after he's baptized into the, into the wilderness. And then Jesus announces, as he has opportunity in his public ministry, for the first time to stand up and speak the word of God publicly, he quotes from Isaiah 61, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. For the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news. Jesus performed miracles by the power of the Spirit. He healed by the power of the Spirit. He cast out demons. He resisted temptation. He lived the perfect life. He accomplished all the Father sent him to do through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And we certainly see the fruits of the Spirit in his life, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. In the resurrection, now we chiefly think of the resurrection, well, the Son of God is being raised by the Father. But according to Paul in Romans 1.4, it was declared with power that the Son of God, by his resurrection from the dead, um, it was, that it was through the spirit of holiness in Romans 1.4. And likewise, Peter states in 1 Peter 3.18, but he was put to death in the body, made alive by the Spirit. So we have in all these cases the Holy Spirit functioning here, behind the scenes, if you would, bringing the spotlight on the Son and the glory to the Father. The Holy Spirit is also the author of Scripture. You have a Holy Bible because of the Holy Spirit. And we often see in Scripture the Word and the Spirit linked together. 
The word we are told, for example, is God breathed, and that word breathe is distinctly related to, is directly related to the word spirit, ruach, is breath or wind. In Isaiah 59, verse 21, it says, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon them and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth and out of your offspring and your children forever. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 tells us that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. It says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So the Word of God was not written by human beings. When your friends at work talk to you about God's Word and they say, oh, that's the words of men, they say, well, yeah, men pen those words, but the Word tells us that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We have a Bible today because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moved on hearts and minds of writers, yet this Spirit-inspired Scripture focuses on Christ. Even after the Spirit comes in, in uh, fullness, in Pentecost, prominent in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit empowers evangelism through the book of Acts. But what's the purpose of evangelism? What's the purpose of proclamation? It is to preach the gospel of Christ, his death and burial and resurrection. So the New Testament reveals to us that the Holy Spirit is behind the scenes. He's behind the scenes in our regeneration. He causes us to be born again. Uh, the new birth cannot happen unless the Spirit of God works in your life, drawing you to Christ, indwelling your heart, giving you a new life. If you, apart from that, you, the confession of your mouth means nothing unless the Holy Spirit does a work. It is the Spirit's work to awaken the dead sinner, to give him new life. And how, what's that new life often described as? Being in Christ. We don't talk about being in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we talk about being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But it's a new life in conformity to the image of Christ. And the same way, the Spirit is our sanctifier. Sanctification occurs in our lives progressively by the Holy Spirit. But who does it make us more like? Christ. The Holy Spirit will even take the third position to the Father and the Son for all eternity. Yet he is God. And all of this underlines the principle that the work of creation and the new creation, including our redemption, including our sanctification, is a, a work of God each person of the Trinity are engaged in. The church fathers proclaimed, all persons of the Trinity share in all external acts of God and are undivided. And it's amazing to think about that as we think about the unity and the harmony of this common work of redemption, this common work throughout this, that's revealed to us in the Word of God, accomplished through the authority and the submission of this mutual relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Unity of purpose, harmony and mission, uh, yet differentiation of roles, never at odds with each other, never checking to see what the other is doing, but in perfect harmony, in perfect unity. And we see this often in the Scripture, the interchangeability of the three persons. Although the Scripture reveals they are distinct persons with distinct roles, there is a mutual indwelling 
that puts them in perfect harmony. So that we can say, for example, believers here can say, to have the Holy Spirit is to have Christ. Uh, To have Christ is to have the Holy Spirit. Not to have the Holy Spirit is to lack Christ. Uh, Listen to Romans chapter 8, or you can turn there, Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. Romans 8, 9 through 11. It says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So right away you see this, he's moving from the Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, so there's overlap in language there. But then he goes on. But if Christ is in you, seamless doesn't, doesn't change the idea here, but if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Striking, isn't it, how it flows from from speaking of the spirit to Christ, to the Father. And in these verses we move from the spirit of God to the spirit of Christ to Christ to him who raised Jesus from the dead, the Father, to the Father, the Spirit of God. And this only makes sense in light of the Trinity. You can't make sense of this outside of the Trinity. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Now the Lord, who is the Spirit, now the Lord, I'm sorry, now the Lord is the Spirit, And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see the equivalency here of Christ with the Spirit. Jesus is the truth. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. Jesus is the teacher. The Holy Spirit comes to teach us. And make disciples. Jesus is the witness whom God sent. The Holy Spirit is sent into the world to be a witness of Christ. Jesus refers to the Spirit as another comforter. Another, meaning like himself. He tells his disciples, you heard it earlier, read earlier. Don't worry, this is good for you, I have to go. But there's another comforter, one who is like me. He's like himself. So there's this intrinsic link between Jesus. And even when he says in his departure... He tells his disciples, I will come back to you. And in so doing, he's not speaking there of the resurrection or his final return. I don't have time to exposit that now. But he's talking about the person, coming of the person of the Holy Spirit. So complete is this union that exists between Jesus and the Holy Spirit that the coming of Christ is the coming of the Spirit. The, uh, or the other way around, the coming of the Spirit is, is, is the coming of Christ. The reason for this identity between the Christ and the Spirit is because the Holy Spirit was with Christ from the beginning. In eternity past, the scriptures hint at this in the very first words of the Bible, where God is identified as Elohim, a plural noun. He eternally exists as echad, one in perfect unity. The Hebrew word suggests a a unity as opposed to an absolute singular oneness. 
The Holy Spirit is ideally suited as the chief witness for Christ because he was the intimate companion of the Son of God from all eternity. And he continued through the life of Jesus. Another property of the Holy Spirit in relation to the Father and the Son is that he proceeds or he goes forth or he moves out with power and purpose. In relational terms, we understand the Father sent the Son. It makes sense, right? Because we have this human understanding of Father and Son. The Father sends the Son. Not the Son sends the Father. That wouldn't make sense. But, although not as obvious immediately, we can come through our study of Scripture that it is the Father and the Son that send the Spirit. Now, not every uh, form of Christianity agrees with this. There was a great split in the church in 1054 AD over this question, does the Spirit proceed from the Father uh, through the Son, or does the Spirit proceed from the Father and the Son in unity simultaneously? The Eastern Church, Constantinople, asserted that the Holy Spirit proceeded only from the Father and objected to the addition of and the Son to the Nicene Creed. The Western Church asserted that he proceeds from the Father and the Son simultaneously. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, addresses this. It says, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son, the Spirit of His own Son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Here, clearly, God is is a reference to the Father. The Father is the one who is sending the Spirit by His own, uh, through His, uh, sorry, the Spirit of His own Son. So the Father sends the Spirit. But then in John 15, verse 26, Jesus says, When the Helper comes, I will send to you from the Father... That is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me. So here again, the spirit proceeds from the Father, yet the spirit is also, Jesus says, I will send him to you. And that just makes sense, right? Jesus died, he was resurrected. Uh, uh, Fifty days later, uh, at Pentecost, the spirit is poured out. Forty days later, Jesus ascends to the right hand of God. Ten days after that, the Spirit comes. So the Spirit comes from the Father and the Son. But there is this profound interrelatedness that I want you to see here in the procession, sending of the Spirit. And I believe uh, the Scripture teaches in this case that the Roman Church or the Western Church was right that the Spirit proceeds both from the Father and the Son simultaneously. Uh, These are things that they split over many uh, a millennia ago. To come from the Father is to come from the Son. And uh, the interrelatedness of the three are what the church fathers refer to as a mutual indwelling. And I'm starting to close in here. Mutual indwelling. Jesus says uh, this of, of he and the Father in John chapter 14, verse 11. He says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And it's not too far of a stretch for us to include the Holy Spirit in that statement. There is a mutual indwelling. Athanasius wrote in the 4th century, while remaining what he is by himself as Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, is holy in the others as the others are holy in him. So they remain distinct, but they are also in one another. That's what is called the doctrine of mutual indwelling. This idea was developed by the earliest of church fathers, and they worked out 
this was part of the working out of the doctrine of the Trinity. Theophilus of Antioch was the first writer to use the term Trinity in the first century. I'm sorry, the second century. Later on, shortly after that, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, Augustine of Hippo wrote about the mutual indwelling as they explored this idea of the Trinity, not just as three distinct persons, which they are, but also three lives who indwell, who penetrate one another. This concept of mutual indwelling was essential to understand the Trinity and the manner in which the Trinity works. In in the thinking of the early church fathers, they, they developed this idea that the Holy Spirit had this unique role in the mutual indwelling. That he can be considered, in a sense, the glue that holds together the oneness of the Godhead. These are, I'm just sharing some early church ideas here. Um, um, there are several passages in the Scripture, particularly in the Gospel of John, that bind the Father and the Son together very clearly, together as one in a personal bond of unity. Well, the, the Holy Spirit is seen as the unifier of that bond. That this is his particular eternal role in eternity. That he was the unifier, the glue of that bond. He bound together that. That was his eternal role in the Trinity. And isn't it interesting that many New Testament passages attribute the fellowship of the Holy Spirit as our bond of unity in the church. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. This Trinitarian benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The Holy Spirit grants this fellowship in love and grace. In Ephesians 4.3, the Holy Spirit identified as the unifier of the body of Christ. And it's this quality of unity that is specifically attributed to the Holy Spirit. Colossians 3.14 tells us similarly that love is the perfect bond of unity. The Holy Spirit is the bond of unity. Love is the bond of unity. Putting these two two ideas together, Augustine formulated this idea that the Holy Spirit is the unifier because he is love. So the Father loves the Son, and the unifying love is the Spirit. And if we think about it just in human terms, for there to be love, there needs to be a subject, an object, and there needs to be the verb, right? Love itself. So the Trinity is required for God to be love, for love to have existed eternally in the past. And we know that it did because Jesus said that the Father loved him from the beginning of time. So it's just a way of, of, of thinking about the Trinity even before the creation of the world. So brothers, our understanding of the Holy Spirit now becomes very practical as we close up here. We need to know the Holy Spirit better so that we love better. We will become better husbands, better fathers, better friends to one another, better family members in our family as we love one another better. Love is the core value of the Christian faith. And more than anything, outside of anything else, as I identifies us as Christians by our love, which is a product or a fruit of the Holy Spirit, they will know us. This is going to lead us into our afternoon's uh, sessions or, or our um, small group sessions. 
and also the afternoon session that uh, Pastor Joe will do on the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. But before I close, I, I do want to address the function of the Holy Spirit in the world. In the beginning, the Holy Spirit breathed physical life into humanity. And the Holy Spirit dwelt or strived with humanity. When, even after sin came into the world, the Holy Spirit was striving with mankind. But the role of the Holy Spirit with humanity changed with sin came into the world after the fall. God, the Holy Spirit, still strives with fallen men, but he has a different function, a different role. His role now, we heard in John chapter 16, is convicting of sin, of ungodliness. Jesus said, and I'll read it again in 16, chapter 16, verses 7 through 9, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you, in verse 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. So let me address you here today, friend, if you're apart from Christ, that the Spirit of God is striving with you. The Spirit of God, who is the trusted helper of the Christian, the friend of the believer, is striving with you if you are outside of Christ today. And he may be an undesired intruder in your life because he is bringing conviction of sin. He is pointing to your only hope in Christ. He's not pointing to a self-salvation, but he is pointing you away from yourself. He is pointing you to repent and believe the gospel. So if you're not trusting Christ this morning, the Holy Spirit will convict you of sin and he will point you in the way of righteousness. This is what he does in the world. For as long as he strives in this world, and as long as he strives with you. But this will not be forever. When the Spirit is removed, that is an indication of judgment. Happened in the days of Noah. The Spirit is removed, judgment comes. But as long as he is in the world, and as long as he is there to convict men of sin, he is and point the way to God's righteousness, warning you of the wrath to come, I would plead with you to not ignore this. You are a part of while you have breath and while you have life, that is your opportunity to believe and to repent. But it is appointed to every man to die once. And when that spirit, when that breath, physical breath leaves, you are turned over to judgment. So my friend, as much as you might not like to be convicted of your sin, See it as God's gift to you, a sign that the Holy Spirit is striving with you, that you've not yet been handed over to judgment, and pray that he would grant you repentance, and that he would recreate a new man in you by coming into your heart. Ezekiel 36, 27, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What a beautiful promise to close and consider as we before we break up into our groups, that God said, I will put my spirit within you. What an impactful statement. I will put my spirit within you. Meditate on that. Deity dwells in your heart. What power lies within you, brothers? Greater is he that is in you. The one who is active in creation, 
The one who is convicting the world of sin, the one who is mighty to save and to sanctify, lives within you. The one who empowered Jesus empowers you. He empowers you to live a righteous life, to overcome sin, to fight temptation. He empowers you to live boldly in this world. The one who raised Jesus from the dead raises you from your spiritual deadness to a newness of life. As God, the Holy Spirit within, grants you immediate access to the presence of God. Any moment, at any time, you can call upon God because He is within you. You don't know what to pray for? He'll show you what to pray for. As a person who dwells within, you can have a personal relationship with God. You speak to Him. You speak to Him as a person. He's always with you. He's with you when you go to sleep at night. And He's with you when you wake. Again, He's closer than your spouse, closer than any human being ever will be. Speak with Him. Say to Him, Good morning, Holy Spirit. I hope you can see the potential that this truth has to change you as it had so affected me many, many years ago. And I'll let you guys take time to discuss that in your groups. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in this person of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you, O God, that we are not alone, that when you call us, you grant us your spirit to indwell in our hearts, and that he will be with us even to the end of the age. We thank you, Lord, for the promises of his eternal presence, the sealing of, his, of the spirit. And we praise you, Lord. Please bless our time of fellowship in our groups and all that takes place the remainder of this day. And we ask it in the name of our God who reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.